The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. It can be found on page 8 of your black Bible in front of you. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city to see the city and the tower which the children and the man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that was proposed to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Mary Henley, and good to be with all of y'all. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It really is so good to have you here joining us to worship our Lord together. Uh, you know, it can, when you come to a church, sometimes it can feel like, um, man, this is a place where I need to, to have it together, or this is a place where maybe I'm trying to ascend on my religious journey towards God or towards heaven. And what we believe here at Christ the King is that there's, there's good news that God doesn't require us to ascend to him. But actually what we're going to see today is that God in his, in his goodness condescends to us. And so the church um, is not a place for winners who are ascending it's a place for losers, which is good news for the Aggies and Longhorns today, right? But uh, th- this is, I'm a Vanderbilt fan, I can't talk, okay. But uh, this, this is actually a place for people who don't have it all together. And we think that the Bible has good news for folks like that, folks like us. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word. Father, it's not lost on us that on the day we're studying the Tower of Babel, we also remember the day the Twin Towers came down in our country. Lord, we thank you for the sacrificial love displayed by so many on that day. We grieve the losses of that day and the way that our world was forever changed by that day. And we look to you for hope that one day you will unite people from every tribe, tongue, and language in a world redeemed and made right and ruled by your son, Jesus. So we ask in his name that you would send your spirit now to help us as we hear from your word. Please work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, we've been going through the book of Genesis for the last several months, and just to remind you, one of the things I think it's important is that the first people who received the book of Genesis were Israelites who were leaving the country of Egypt, the land of Egypt, uh, as freed slaves. 
and we're about to journey into the promised land. And in the book of Genesis, God is retelling them their story. Because whatever story we believe about ourselves, it shapes our identity. And this is a group of people who've been, they've been slaves for the last 400 years. They would have had some stories that they believed about themselves. And God is giving them a new story, the true story about who they really are. And he's, he's going to shape, reshape their identity by telling them the true story of who they are. And what we see all throughout the Bible is, is God is giving people a reminder of what their identity is. And then after he gives them that, he gives them a mission. It happens right at the very beginning when God creates men and women in Genesis chapter one. There's this identity language. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's the very first thing that's said about humanity. We're made in the image of God. That's our identity. But right after that comes a mission. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the hair and so on and so forth. So right there you see identity, mission. And then two verses later, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. That's, that's their identity. They are going to be blessed by God. But then right behind that comes mission. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Do you hear that pattern? Identity, mission. It happens, again, we, we looked at the story of Noah not too many weeks ago. In Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons. There it is, identity. They are blessed by God. And then God gives them a mission. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There's that pattern, identity, mission. We're gonna see this next week too, by the way, spoiler alert, Abram. Abram is going to be blessed by God. God's gonna tell him, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Your name is going to be great. That's your identity. Right after that, what comes? Mission. So that you will be a blessing and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's that pattern. And so the question that I have for, for us this morning is do we follow that pattern? Do we believe that pattern to be true for us? In other words, does your identity form your mission or do you believe that your mission forms your identity? Or another way of asking it, does who you are make you do what you do? Does who you are make you do what you do? Or does what you do make you who you are? What I believe is that we often flip this pattern. We flip this pattern and begin to live into this, what we believe to be real reality, that what we do, that our mission will actually inform us of our identity. And that's what we see happening in the Tower of Babel. This story, of Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel shows us what happens when we believe that what we do makes us who we are. And it shows the folly of having your identity formed by what you do. So three things for us this morning. First, building an identity. Second, tools for the build. And then third, a merciful intervention. 
So first we see this, this building happening. And, and there is a literal building happening. These people gather in the Valley of Shinar, which would have been in um, kind of modern-day Iraq. It's a very fertile area in Mesopotamia. They gather there, and they determine that they're going to build a tower. But it's not just a tower that they're building. It, it, it really is they're, they're going to build an identity for themselves. And what we see is that as soon as we start trying to build an identity for ourselves, and we think we have to do that, we get self-interested and self-centered really quickly. This, this is true in our own culture. I, I was listening to one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, a couple weeks ago. And he was talking about, he was talking about how we have mirrors in gyms. He's like, why, why do we have mirrors in gyms? And he says, it's because I want to look at myself. I want to look at myself while I work on myself. I should make a recording so I can listen to myself while I look at myself, while I work on myself, as I leaf through my self magazine and read about how myself can improve myself. Maybe I'll go to my Facebook page and look at photos of myself and read what myself has written about myself. Like, that's us, right? That's why we have mirrors in the gym. It's not because of your form, right? It's we want to look at ourselves. And if we, if we look at verse four in Genesis 11, we see, we see the exact same kind of mindset. Look at it. They say, let us build for ourselves a city. Why? Let us make a name for ourselves. There's identity language. We are going to make a name for ourselves. Hi, how? By our mission, by what we do. By building this tower, we will make a name for ourselves. Now, I want you to see how there has been a flip in their self-understanding in Genesis 11 from how God originally created people. In Genesis 1, we get this picture of a God who is a host, a God who he is, he is the triune creator of all things, who is making all things out of a gift of himself. He is giving of himself to the world. He doesn't need anything. Remember we talked about this. He doesn't need anything. He has everything he needs in himself. And so it is out of the overflow of his joy that he creates. Out of the overflow of his love and self-giving that he creates. And then he makes man in his image and he tells them to be like him to go and to give of yourself, fill the earth, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, give of yourself to it, create good things in it, fill the world with beauty and light and love. And this is the mission that God, he gives it to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He gives this mission to Noah and his sons, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What's he tell Abram? In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has a global mission in mind and yet what are the people of Babel doing in verse four they say lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth we have to we have to start building a name for ourselves so they are going to do the very opposite thing that God has commanded them to do they are going to consolidate their power for self-preservation and for self-glory 
We're going to build a name for ourselves. They, they do not have any concern with filling the earth with God's beauty. They have no concern over following his mission. Instead, they are believing that their mission is going to be what brings about their identity. And so it's out of this fear of self-preservation and this pride of self-glorification that they stop thinking about the good of the others and the good of the world and instead are focusing on themselves. And this is the same pattern that we have seen all throughout the book of Genesis so far. That as mankind begins to focus on the self, we try to ascend to the place where God only is to be. What's the, the very first temptation in Genesis 3? That the serpent whispers to Eve, take of the fruit because God knows that if you eat of it, you'll become like him. Ascend, become like him, Eve, become like him, Adam. Take it, and when you take it, you'll become like him. And this is what we see the people in Babel doing as well. They're trying to become like God. They're trying to ascend to the heavens. And I think we can see parallels with our world and our culture, and if we're honest, with our, with our own lives. If we think about the ways that our fear and our self-preservation and our desire for our own glory pushes us towards a self-interest. It pushes us towards what Wendell Berry calls the objective. Wendell Berry is a, um, he's a poet and a farmer from Kentucky, 88-year-old farmer, poet from Kentucky. He writes this poem, on it's kind of long, but I'm gonna read it to you. It's from, um, it's called the, the Objective. He writes, even while I dreamed, I prayed that what I saw was only fear and no foretelling. For I saw the last known landscape destroyed for the sake of the objective. The soil bulldozed, the rock blasted. Those who wanted to go home would never get there now. Visited the offices where for the sake of the objective, the planners planned at blank desks set in rows. I visited the loud factories where the machines were made that would drive ever forward toward the objective. I saw the forest reduced to stumps and gullies. I saw the poisoned river, the mountain cast into the valley. I came to the city that nobody recognized because it looked like every other city. I saw the passages worn by the unnumbered footfalls of those whose eyes were fixed upon the objective. Their passing had obliterated the graves and the monuments of those who had died in pursuit of the objective and who had long ago forever been forgotten according to the inevitable rule that those who have forgotten forget that they have forgotten. Men and women and children now pursued the objective as if nothing, as if nobody had ever pursued it before. The races and the sexes now intermingled perfectly in pursuit of the objective. The once enslaved, the once oppressed were now free to sell themselves to the highest bidder and to enter the, paying pris the best paying prisons in pursuit of the objective, which was the destruction of all enemies, which was the destruction of all obstacles, which was to clear the way to victory, which was to clear the way to promotion, to salvation, to progress to the completed sale, 
to the signature on the contract, which was to clear the way to self-realization, to self-creation, from which nobody who ever wanted to go home would ever get there now, for every remembered place had been displaced, every love unloved, every vow unsworn, every word unmeant, to make way for the passage of the crowd of the individuated, the autonomous, the self-actuated, the homeless with their many eyes opened toward the objective which they did not yet perceive in the far distance, having never known where they were going, having never known where they came from. We're really glad to offer this ministry of encouragement to you here at Christ the King this morning. Um, what is he getting at? That, that, that we have lost our identity. We don't know where we're from. And so we don't know where we're going. But we just pursue some objective to build, to build ourselves, to build a name for ourselves. And in doing so, we are finding ourselves to be further and further from home. And so this is what we find happening in the Tower of Babel, these people that their mission has become one of building their own identity, their own brand. And for many of us, that's how we live our lives, if we're honest. Like we live our day-to-day lives like we're building our own brand. Our own brand before others, before God. And if you're like me, that feels exhausting. Like we are exhausted by that. But as we do it, as we try to build our identity or our brand, what we, what we find is that we begin placing our hope in the wrong things. And, and that's what's happening here with the people of Babel. So second, the tools for the build. They, in verse three, this is a recording of a, techno, a technological breakthrough that happens that they're beginning to put their, their hope in. They, they develop the technology of bricks. And because they can now make bricks, they can make uniform structures and build more quickly and more efficiently than ever before. And they're going to use this technology to progress and to become more godlike or to even ascend to the heavens. And throughout human history, we have seen that there is a temptation to look to our own ingenuity, our own technology, our own progress to reach some sort of paradise or some sort of utopia. And and I wanna be clear, God is not anti-progress in this story. In Genesis one, we see that God is pro-progress because he's telling them to have dominion over all of creation and to subdue the earth and to work it and to bring about beauty from it. And this, this would have required them doing science and learning about God's world and cultivating it. God is not anti-progress. But because God is good, he knows, he knows that we can't build our own identity. We can't progress so much that we could build our own identity into a place of divinity and salvation, which is what they're trying to do. 
Because, I mean, think about, I was thinking about this, the, um, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, there was a lot of, there was a lot of talk, and we're, you know, we're living after the Industrial Revolution. At the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, there was a lot of talk about, like, what are we, what are we going to do as we develop these machines, as we develop um, this technology that's actually going to help us not work so much? Or even like in, like in the home, think about post-industrial revolution. Now we have, we have vacuum cleaners and washing machines and dryers and dishwashers, all these things that used to take so much time. You can kind of imagine someone as they're making it thinking like, man, we are going to give people so much time back in their day. What are they going to do with all their time? You know, or, or with the development of, um, of computers, email, like we, can, we can communicate with somebody immediately. We don't have to send a, a, a letter in the mail anymore. Like, think about all the work we're going to be able to get done, spreadsheets and machine learning. And like, all, of, all of this technology that we've developed, you would kind of imagine that like, oh, now we've got like all this time back. To, back. We can just like relax, right? But that's not what we've done. We haven't taken all the time that we've, we've taken all the time that we've gotten back, and we've worked more. In fact, I, w- I would argue that since the industrial revolution, we have begun imagining ourselves more and more as machines, as a cog in the machine, as we try to build towards some objective or towards some identity or towards some utopia. Which, interestingly enough, the Latin word utopia, that comes from the, that, the word utopia comes from the Latin word, which means nowhere. That's what we're building to. That's what we think we're progressing to. And so, we, ha- we, we need to, um, I think that we need to, to be critical of the ways that we embrace technology. And think about, are, are we engaging this in, in such a way that it is for our good and for the good of others? And, and there's a great documentary that I would recommend to you to check out called The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Uh, it was, I think it was made a couple years ago. Do something fun afterwards because you're going to get sad watching it. But, and maybe don't watch it with your kids yet or, you know, you can figure that out, your parent. But the... Uh, the documentary, it features one man in particular named Tristan Harris, who um, at one point was the chief ethicist at Google. And prior to that, he was working with Google on their Gmail team to develop um, Gmail, which was you know, this world-changing email platform. And he said while he, was develop- while he was on that Gmail team, he realized, he said there was no one working at Gmail who was trying to make it less addictive. No one was trying to make it less addictive. And in the documentary, at the, be, at the beginning of, um, of the movie, you see him practicing. I think it was a TED Talk he was about to give. Um, he's on the stage, and he's practicing with the stage director, um, this TED Talk that he's giving. And he begins this way. He says, if you ask people, what's wrong in the tech industry right now? There's a cacophony of grievances and scandals, and they stole our data, and there's tech addiction, and there's fake news, and there's polarization. But is there something that is beneath all these problems that's causing all these things to happen at once? And then he kind of, this is a great question, he kind of stops and he looks up at the stage director and he's trying to explain what he's getting at. And he says, I'm like trying to, 
I want people to see like, there's a problem happening in the tech industry and it doesn't have a name and it has to do with one source and then he kind of trails off and it goes to the next scene. And I'm sitting on my couch watching, I want to jump up and just be like, it's sin. Like sin is the problem. And that's what Genesis is telling us all throughout the story. Genesis 6, 5, every inclination of the thought of man's heart is only evil all the time. And then after the flood, it's still a problem. Genesis 8, 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So I mean, think about all those problems that Tristan Harris listed off. There's data theft because people use technology for their own advantage and power and dissension. There's tech addiction because people look to technology as an otherworldly escape from this place, which is idolatry. There's fake news because we're drawn to believing whatever our tribe or group is telling us. And our attention is grabbed by salacious stories, even if they aren't true. And we never admit this, but our click rate communicates that we'd rather hear exciting fake news than true boring news. There's polarization because we don't love our enemies. Instead, we assume the worst of them. It's safer to caricaturize our enemies from a distance in our own Babel-like ivory towers grouped with our people rather than engaging with them, listening to them, loving them, and praying for them like Jesus commands us to. The problem with our technology is us, our sin. And our technology will never overcome our sin. I'll say that again. Our technology will never overcome our sin. And yet, your phone and other technologies like it is whispering to you the same whisper of the serpent in the garden. You can be like God. You can be like God. Do you want to be omniscient? Pull me out and Google me. That's what your phone's telling you. You can be like God. You can be omniscient like God. Just Google it. You can know everything. Do you want to be all powerful like God, omnipotent like God? You can be like that. Open up your Amazon app and whatever you want will be at your doorstep in a few hours. You will be like God. Do you want to be omnipresent like God everywhere at once? Pull out your phone and while you watch TV and have your computer open, you can watch the football game, answer email, and see what's happening on like Beyonce's live feed all at the same time. You can be everywhere like God. You can be like God. That's what our technology is whispering to us, that we can somehow ascend. Do you feel that? Like, do you, do you feel the way that... Our, that that technology is whispering to you that you can build some sort of identity. Maybe it's um, on your social media platform. You can build an identity on there. You can make a name for yourself on there. Maybe it's, maybe it's with your career. Use this technology. Use this technology to build your career and make a name for yourself. I mean, do you feel that tug when you're on vacation? And there's just that email that you want to shoot off real quick or that text message that you need to respond to. And we want to use our technology. We want to use our technology to ascend and to make a name for ourselves. But God, we see God mercifully intervenes. That's my final point. There's a merciful intervention in this story. 
And we see this all throughout Genesis 1 through 11, that God is always mercifully intervening. And that even when God intervenes with judgment, there's mercy woven in with it. So like when Adam and Eve sin and God sends them out of the garden, it's an act of mercy. Because God says, we must send them out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in this state of sin. It's a mercy that God sends them out. It's a mercy that God, when he's going to destroy the earth because of, because of our sin, because it deserves it. God weaves a story of mercy in that judgment and he saves Noah and his family. He saves humanity. And in this story, we see once again that God, he is being merciful. He's not being anti-progress. Like at the first reading, we were talking about this in our, um, with our staff when we were preparing for this sermon earlier this week. That the first reading, it kind of looks like God just doesn't want them to be able to do cool stuff. Right, like we, look at verse, uh, I think it's verse six. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. We see God isn't being anti-progress. What God is doing is he's being extremely realistic because he knows the great tyranny and the great oppression that will come from people trying to build their own identities on top of one another and being self-interested and building a name for themselves and a city for themselves. God is mercifully intervening by weakening humanity and confusing their languages. He's also being merciful because he knows that they will never be able to build a tall enough tower. There is like a little bit of humor in this in verse five when God says, come, let's, let's go see this tower. And it says, God, I mean, they're, in verse four, they're like, we're gonna make a name for ourselves and build this great tower into the heavens. And in the very next verse, God says, let's go see it. And he has to like leave heaven and come down and look at it because it, he, he, it, it's, it's so tiny. He's like, let's go check this thing out with their building. Oh, there it is, it's way down there. Now God can see everything. The Bible talks about that. So it's, it's being a little humorous here. He has to come down out of heaven to even see it. That, that's how pitiful our attempts to ascend into heaven is. That's how pitiful it is. And so God, in his, in his mercy, he confuses them, he scatters them, and we see that in scattering them, God's purposes to fill the earth with his image bearers is not thwarted. Remember the mission that he's been giving them all throughout the story? To fill the earth, to multiply, to fill it? He's gonna do it. God's purposes are never thwarted. They're never stopped. And so in verse nine, they are dispersed over the face of the earth. But what I want you to also see is that God is not finished with his global rescue plan. Even these people from the Valley of Shinar, he doesn't forget them. He doesn't forget that area, that region. Listen to Isaiah 11. In that day, 
This is a prophecy. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Isaiah says that in that day, the Lord will recover these people. Well, what day is he talking about? Well, go a couple verses earlier in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. The Lord is promising that there is one who is coming from Jesse, from David. There's one who's coming who will gather the nations to himself because God's plan can't be stopped. And it's, it's going to be a surprising plan because if you look at a stump, it says a, a shoot off of a stump. If you look at a stump, you don't look at that and think like, there's something really, that's a really fertile place for growth, that, that dried up stump in the ground. But the prophet is saying from, from that hopeless looking situation, there is going to be this shoot that comes up out of it. And it will be, it will be the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus who comes, and as Isaiah says later in 53 verse two, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. That sounds like someone growing up out of a stump. No form, no majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. So what's so beautiful about the gospel is God looks at us and we're people who think we've got to gather everyone in and build everything up like the Tower of Babel. Let's gather in and get really secure and build up our lives and then we will reach the heavens. We are an in and up people and God is a down and out God. He comes as a down and out man who had no form or majesty that we should desire him. He comes as a down and out homeless rabbi with no education. And he comes and he lives among us. He comes down. He doesn't wait for us to come up. He comes down and he pours out his life. He doesn't hold it in and protect it from others. He pours his very life out on the cross to save people who are trying to build their own identities. And he welcomes us. He welcomes us to find our identity in him instead and in his work on our behalf. He welcomes us to rest in the work that he's done. And because of the finished work of Jesus, what happens right after the finished work of Jesus? When all of the people, it's 120 of them, not a lot of Christians at this point. In Acts chapter two, right after the finished work of Jesus, they're gathered for the feast of Pentecost. 
and the Tower of Babel is flipped on its head because God's purposes will not be thwarted. All these people from all different tribes and tongues and languages are gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes down. God comes down. They don't have to go up. God comes down. The Holy Spirit comes down onto the disciples and Peter begins to preach the good news and all these people with all these different languages and they have different languages because of what happened at Babel. All these people with all these different languages hear the good news of Jesus in their language because God's purposes will not be stopped. They hear the good news of Jesus proclaimed and this is what Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't build a name for yourselves. You don't have to build a name for yourselves. Repent and be baptized and believe in the name of Jesus. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let Jesus make a name for you and then you don't have to build yourself up to heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down to you. That's the gospel. This is the good news they hear. You don't have to make a name for yourself. Instead, find your name in Christ. Are you, like, just be honest for a second. Are you tired of trying to prove to other people that you are not inadequate? Are you tired of trying to prove that to yourself, that you're not inadequate? Are you tired of trying to prove that to God? Feeling like you have to make a name for yourself? Y'all, what if instead we took God at his word? That everything he has is yours and to come to him into the party. That's what, that's what the father tells this older brother in a parable that Jesus recounts. That there's this older brother who's been trying to build his life and earn his way into getting a party. And the father comes out to him, he's like, just come in. Everything I have is yours. Come in. Let me, be, let, let me be the one who names you. Rest in my name. Don't, don't build a name for yourself. Rest in my name. What if we would repent of our identity building and embrace our identity in Christ? I think it would let us rest today. The Lord wants that for you. In fact, he wants it so much that he's commanded us to. He wants us to rest if we were to embrace our identity in Christ and have to build a name for ourselves, perhaps we could be less efficient with our time because you're more than a working thing building your name. You would have time to enjoy God and enjoy God's image bearers that he has placed around you. Don't you want this? Jesus, whose yoke is easy and burden is light, is inviting you to rest in his work for you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the good news of Jesus and that he has gone to work on our behalf. We pray that you would give us the faith to believe and to follow him. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.